Hello, world. Welcome to the Speed Strength Show. I'm Braden. I'm Tommy. And to sleep with or without socks? Without. Big time without. Okay. Unless... I'm, on, I'm on the I'm in the same same boat. I'm a no socks when I sleep. Yeah. I mean, honestly, when I'm like I feel like by the end of the day, the socks got me all contained, you know, and just like taking the socks off is such a sigh of like relief almost. And then when you feel when you feel that like like stressed swollen foot just like slide against the sheets the cold sheets it's like oh man there's nothing like it you know yeah and it's funny you mentioned the cold like obviously everyone thinks like okay bundle up into bed i got the blankets i got this like you're thinking about like staying warm Mm. but there is something about like lying down the pillow is like cool and crisp the mm-hmm. bed is cool and crisp. The blankets have that same feeling that like, mm-hmm. even though there's a bit of that like initial like uh, kind of chill thing, yeah. it, like you don't want to get into a warm bed. No, dude. You want to get into warm. like, I think that's how I would describe it. Like a cool crisp. Yeah. Crisp. It's got crisp a bit of this like relaxing yet, you know, right away when you're there type mm-hmm. type feeling to it. Yeah, yeah. And I well, find, yeah, you get robbed of that if you wear socks yeah for sure or like i mean anything really like i i mean i don't care i wear underwear to bed that's it yeah you I know mean, well, try to sleep you know like cool because if you have like a hoodie on or something and then you yeah throw the blankets over top that's a recipe for waking up 45 minutes after you've fallen asleep dude i'll be sweating in like 30 <laughs> seconds yeah like i wouldn't <laughs> even be, i wouldn't even be able to fall asleep with a sweater on no definitely like, not straight up it's okay. So it's weird. There's sometimes like if I have a nap during the day, mm-hmm. I can nap with clothes on and I won't be too warm. And I have no idea why I have zero idea why. Cause it's, it's warmer during the day, but yeah. I nap, I can nap under the sheets with like my day clothes on and I'm fine. And oh, I'm so this isn't even like lying down on the couch with no blankets, like fall no, asleep dude. for 20 like, minutes. In, You're talking about like actually like actively bed, getting the blanket under the and... comforter yeah it's great i have no idea why but like when i get into bed at night and i'll be yeah like basically naked under the comforter and i'm sweating within like <laughs> that's two minutes, so wild you know and then i'm like kicking one leg out or i'm like pulling the sheets off back so my shoulders exposed yeah like something doesn't you pull know? you off or whatever yeah and then some other times like i'll be my full body is like too hot like i'm sweating but my feet are freezing, which I think is probably just a blood flow issue. Um, and so then in that situation, I'll wear socks if it's extreme. Yeah. The only reason I thought of it the other day is because like, I wasn't feeling super well a couple of weeks ago and I was like knocked out of work for a few days. Yeah. And there was one night where for whatever reason I was so tempted. I was like, my feet are cold. I need to sleep with socks. And it got me thinking, I was like, I can't remember the last time I fell asleep with mm-hmm. socks on yeah. like overnight, like went to bed thinking about, I need to put socks on before I go to bed. Yeah. And I was like, Hmm, I wonder if that's something that like, <clears throat> do most people sleep like sans socks or do they like, is it like a 50, 50 split? I wasn't sure. So I was like, I'm putting that down on the list of opening questions. Cause yeah. now I got to unpack this, but I'd never really thought about it. Cause it was always bare feet for me, like no socks. Yeah. go to sleep but for whatever reason whether i was cold or 
something. I just, I felt like I needed socks on that night to fall asleep because I wasn't feeling super well. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if like, are there people that do this on a regular basis or they're not like, I don't know. So I was like, well, we got to, yeah. got to ask it in the intro and yeah, see what the deal is. I would, I would think the majority of people, I don't know how wide the majority would be, but I, I think the majority would be no socks. I would, I would think. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, I mean, to be you... fair, after the whole Zach. Well, that bathroom what, like, intro, I'm thinking, I'm that. like, yeah, yeah, I'm like, you know what? Anything could be on the table here. Yeah. We could find out we're the only two people in the world that don't sleep with socks on. When we go, like, who knows? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, because yeah. I didn't think. Yeah, like, that's right. Like that, that opened my eyes to being like, you know what? There's, there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of opinions. Who knows what we're going to get into? Yeah, that's right. Like, that's right. Um, that's interesting though. So when, like, I like the cool thing though. I like that you, that, that we're on the same page about that. You know, I, when I'm in bed, I want to be, this is the distinction I use. I don't want to be, I don't want to be warm. I want to be cozy. And that's like, I'm at a comfortable temperature with myself, but I'm all bundled up, you know? So I'll have like the ceiling fan on. Like it's, it's uh, like October when we're recording this, like it's, yeah. it's getting cold. out. It's a cold October right now. Yeah. You know? Um, and so I'll have the ceiling fan on because that keeps the room cool. And then I'm bundled up underneath so that I'm like, I'm warm, but I'm not hot. You know, I like that. It's like when you go outside, it's like a warmish fall day and you got your sweater on and the sun's out and you feel like cozy, but you're not hot. Yeah. It's not like you're stepping out into the 40 degree humidity where you feel like you're walking into a pool. Exactly. Because like yeah. the, the water in the air is just disgusting, yeah. but it's no, also not walking out 20 below. Yeah. <clears throat> in the winter where you're like, oh, like I'm so like, it doesn't matter how many layers you wear, you walk outside and you're like, I'm cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 I know yeah, what you mean. It's sure. like that perfect. <clears throat> yeah. And when you were describing that, like that crisp, like the crisp pillow, the like cool crisp sheets and stuff like to me that honestly, it feels like, like a crisp fall day. It's the same. It's like the same energy. Well, and that's where I think I got the word from. Yeah. Cause like a nice day in the spring, a nice day in the fall. It like, that's like, I think the best word I could use to describe it. it's like crisp. Yeah, And like you said, with the sun being out too, like, I think this was the other, might've been it's just this past weekend. One of the days was way nicer than the other, Yeah, but it was like 15 degrees, but there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was super sunny. Mm. So you walk outside with like, I think I had sweater and shorts on, mm. but when you're in the sun, it just, it's, it was like perfect. Yeah. Like perfect temperature. Yeah. And like with no wind and it's like, you you're not at risk of overheating like you would in the summer when the humidity is just terrible, but like, Mm -hmm. it's obviously nice enough that you can go out in a sweater and shorts and Mm -hmm. not even think like, Oh, I'm, I'm too cold right now. Yeah. Like I need to bundle up. And so that's like, it's just crisp. It's, it's clean. It's crisp. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, yeah, that's what you want. That's what you want. The pillow and the blankets and stuff to be when you're going to bed, you don't want to like lie down. You're like, Oh, the pillow's super warm. Blankets are overheating. Like, I'm not gonna fall asleep now. Yeah, man. Like, and oh. you don't want it to feel like someone put your pillow in the freezer. No, and it's like that's too much. But... You know, like an ice block, and like the moment you touch your skin against it, you're like, Ugh. like it's yeah, like you get that like ice cube touching your body type yeah, shiver. Sure. You know, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. it's gotta it's it's gotta be <clears throat> perfect right in between. And I feel like yeah. that's the the sweet spot. And I feel like socks don't line up with that. 
that's my thought of not wearing socks to the bed yeah, is that definitely socks rob you of that a little bit so that I don't want to wear yeah socks for sure for sure yeah I wonder what that is like I it is really like it and it feels more satisfying after a long day too like coaching like you're on your feet a lot you know yeah. and you come home after that like a long and you take your socks off you slide into bed it's like it's just satisfying you know yeah. I don't know I don't know what what that is but it's yeah it's interesting and and that whole like i don't understand the the warm or uh, the heated blanket thing for yeah. that reason you know like it doesn't check out to me like your your body heat warms it up and, and that's just i guess if you want the bed warm before you're in the bed i don't know but again it's it weird. takes away that <clears throat> that crispness you exactly. can't have the crisp no. with a heated blanket no you can't heat like makes things pliable yeah and it's like a to me, it's a bit of a process, like the bed going from that, call it like crisp to cozy. Oh, dude, as it warms up, oh, that's so nice. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like, you know, I'm thinking of, it's almost like slow cooking ribs or something. Mm. Like there's a difference between letting it slow cook in an oven for eight or nine hours. Like that's the process of making that mm-hmm. happen versus if you just slap ribs in, it's super high, you blast it for an hour. And then mm. take them out like they're different. So I feel like the heated blanket is like, yeah, it's like the microwave of like, yeah. you're just like, you know, putting stuff in there just to yeah. cook it as quick as you can, but it's not going to cook it like well. Like, if you want it cooked well, you have to like, yeah, it slow cook that. it, let its due process happen. And I feel yeah. like that's getting into bed with a, a heated blanket is like microwaving yeah. your food. I wonder if that's proper slow cook, for example. Yeah. I wonder if that's why it's like more satisfying now, because if you get into a warm bed and like you're already warm and then like, okay, now I'm just overheated immediately. I wonder if like you get into a cool bed and you like that you have a chance to app- acclimate together, you know, and you like the environment adapts to you and you adapt to the environment, you know, and then it's just, you know, you end up in this happy medium. Yeah, the synergy is there. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that's yeah. No heated blankets, no socks that ruins the synergy of, ruins the sleep's energy yeah 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 for sure that's interesting that's interesting um would you say based off of our last couple of conversations that wearing socks to bed is the internal cue of uh sleep paraphernalia you know just something that just doesn't make sense to do on the on the majority of cases yeah it's like a it's like lining up the wrong drill for the person mm. or like using the wrong cue. Like to me, it just, it doesn't. Yeah. Or something doesn't maybe have that's... that, that synergy, right? Like yeah. when we're talking about the synergy, like the mistake that's happening and the cue that you give them, mm-hmm. like kind of needs to be yeah. a connectedness or togetherness of that. Like it needs to fit. And I or, guess maybe I should clarify, like it's all valuable. It's just like the synergy needs to be there. So you're using the right kind of language for the correct situation yeah it's choosing the right tool for the job versus explaining the exercise of different things you know yeah if i gotta cut a piece of wood in half i'm not taking out my hammer Mm -hmm. like you need the saw yeah you know and vice versa if i gotta put a nail into the wall i'm not taking out the saw and then gonna try to you know exactly so if and if all you have is a saw you should probably go try to find a hammer and a wrench yeah so i would agree the socks sleep you know that's a that's a combo that doesn't at least for us, doesn't work. But maybe for yeah. some people it does. 
Maybe for and some that's kind of the does. tricky part with queuing and drill selection and yeah. instruction. It works for some people. It doesn't work for others. So you got to, yeah. you know, kind of work through that all the time. Yeah, that's right. Um, so anyway, I wanted to start with, um, cause I mentioned last time there was some, uh, potentially questionable or research that could lead to some interesting, questionable coaching strategies. Um, and I did find the specific papers and unfortunately they were all behind a paywall. So I don't have like the actual, but the book I was reading, explained them and I read the abstracts. And so I have the gist of what happened here. Um, so it's called error amplification is the technique. So you're providing some sort of information that encourages the opposite of what you would consider correct technique um, for this sp specific person. Um, so two, well, three examples, actually. Um, one was golf. So a they used a sort of kinematic um, imaging software kind of thing to to track and they found common issue was like the weight shift wasn't correct um between like backswing and forswing and stuff like that for these amateur golfers um so the correct cue for this would be shift your weight to the back foot and it's an internal cue so it's not already not amazing but shift your weight to the back foot as far as possible while you swing and i don't know if this is backswing or forswing or both or whatever but i would assume backswing yeah. with the rhythm but neither of us are golf experts i don't I'm think not an ex i mean i golf but i'm not an expert i don't okay. yeah. think about shifting my weight like that when i golf and maybe that's why i'm terrible but um so they had three groups one group received that instruction shift their weight back um control group received nothing and then the error amplification group was told to shift their weight forward as far as possible while you swing so complete opposite and that was the group that improved the most. Interesting. So, yeah. They had seven, seven pre-training trials, six practice with the queue, seven post-training trials, and then a one-week retest. And consistently, significantly better, and neither other group improved significantly. Um, so they were somehow encouraged to explore a pattern that didn't make sense, and then their body... Um, like self-organized to make it make more sense, but they were just, instead of it being kind of like a oblivious, like, I don't know what's going on. They're like being shown, this is the thing that makes it wrong or makes it bad. And then they self-organized and found a, a solution that made more sense is the theory. Anyway, it's almost <clears throat> over -cueing to an extent. Yeah, yeah. And and there have definitely been times where I've over somebody and you tell them like, okay, what I'm about to tell you is wrong. Yeah technically speaking, but we are so far on one. end. like, if you see somebody, for example, I was just talking with an athlete about this the other day when we were at practice and he's always like hinged forward at the hip. Like even if mm -hmm. he's upright running, he's mm -hmm. like torso head, like very far collapsed forward. So he's always got this like bender break yeah. at the hips. And so he's super far forward. We want him upright. You never you shouldn't say you never want to tell, but you don't want people to lean back when they sprint. We don't want to be, you know, like driving from the back seat type thing. Yeah. But for this athlete, he's so far forward by telling him this incorrect cue of leaning back. It actually meets in the middle where he's so far forward by telling him to mm -hmm. lean back. It brings him to a relatively neutral 
position. So like I've told them on some of the drills, I'm like, Hey, this is incorrect because we want to be upright. Yeah. But I want you to think about leaning back mm-hmm. on some of these drills. And yeah. again, that actually pulls the person back into neutral. Now then the, the delicate thing is once they start to get to that position, then you obviously don't want to tell them to keep leaning back. Cause then they'll just end up going too far back. But I guess th- this sounds like it's similar to like over cueing. And I yeah, don't know it, if there's a difference between saying, Hey, what I'm about to tell you is wrong, but for you, it might move the needle to a neutral spot yeah. versus just saying, Hey, lean back. Yeah. I because then they might associate that with being the correct way to do it as opposed to a, a cue or a guide to help them to the right spot. Like you yeah. mentioned in that study. Yeah. So I, I, and that's the issue. Like I, I wish I didn't, I don't, I don't even know if the full study would have explained like the specific language that they used because there, I agree there is a difference between, I want you to focus on shifting your weight forward all like all the time versus saying like, you're going to do these six practice swings where you're focusing on shifting your weight forward. And then you're going to return to normal. You know, like I, I can't imagine that this is an all the time cue because then you would end up like enforcing that pattern. You know, but that I, the over cueing thing is something that I've used. Um, yeah. And I think I find it works. I've only really used it honestly. in like a, um, like finding a position or feeling a position. Um, I use it a lot with uh, foot pressure. So if someone's like really on their heels, then like I, I will first cue, you know, like full foot pressure or like press a button under your big toe or something like that. Um, and if that doesn't do anything, then, you know, okay, let's just come into this position that's similar to what we're doing, like a squat. Let's come into like a half squat position, shift to your heels, shift to your toes. Okay. Let's feel the middle position. Let's find that. Yeah, you feel you your know. end ranges, your extremes exactly. that you can deal with. So you just get more awareness of like what your range is and how to find the middle. So I wonder if it's, yeah, it could work similar to that. It's interesting. Um, they, the other study, um, was it was just like one specific case um, where they were talking they were working with a speed skater and there was some sort of device that specifically tracked like ankle dorsiflexion Um, and so with the speed skater the issue was when they crossed over they didn't have enough dorsiflexion so they were as they were putting the the crossover foot down the toe was digging in which either slows you down or like you fall basically. Yeah, it causes like a tripping hazard. Yeah. Um, so you want to put the skate down flat. Um, so you need to be able to consistently hit that perfect dorsiflexion range or like within an acceptable range mm-hmm. to put it down flat without falling. Um, so this device tracked that angle and would make a pleasant sound when you're in an acceptable range. And the further you got away from that range, the sound, they described it as sawtooth. So it's like a really like grindy. Yeah, something that's not super, you don't want to hear over and over again. So you know if you're doing it well or you're not doing it well. Um, And so over time, they shrunk the acceptable range so that you're closer and closer and closer to what is ideal. Um, And then they did that for a month maybe. And then they shifted focus after that to they called it awareness training um to where instead of trying to avoid this sawtooth tone you're trying to make it happen so you are intentionally like going beyond the dorsiflexion or like to like you're not going into the dorsiflexion intentionally yeah yeah 
Um, and I think that is just, yeah, same kind of idea where you're shifting focus, like you're trying to do it wrong. And, and through that, you gain awareness of what wrong feels like, you know, and your body kind of will self-organize to protect you away from that, I'm sure as well. You know? Yeah. And like you said, it, it just gives you all the, like the context of the info. Yeah. Like, you know, this is what it feels like to be incorrect. This is what it feels like to be correct. And you, yeah, you can associate. Yeah. Like maybe not right away, but you, you do a rep and you're like, oh yeah, that one felt closer to this not good feeling of how this yeah. rep or this movement is supposed to be. And obviously awareness is a huge part of like learning. Like if you can't feel you're doing something wrong, mm-hmm. then you don't actually know you're doing something wrong and you need to be aware of your mistakes in order to learn. Yeah. Like one of the best things you can get is when an athlete comes back and you're about to say something to them and they go, I messed up a and B and that kind of like ruined the rep or whatever. And you're like, I don't care that they did the rep wrong. They, they know that they did it wrong. They're learning. They're aware of the movement. They're aware mm-hmm. of what they're doing this person has a better understanding of what we're trying to accomplish. Like that's one of like, that's, that's a great thing to have. So I think this over cueing or this awareness training, like they're talking about it, it helps open up the, the opportunity for somebody to learn how all these different movements feel. And I think gives them a better understanding of how they perceive correct and incorrect for the movements, which is again, helpful because if they're aware of their mistakes, that's going to allow them to learn and make mm-hmm. changes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So as I'm, you know, talking through these things, I'm seeing more application of how these things could be used. Um, and yeah, and yeah, it was the same situation where that second phase of training worked better than the first phase of training and better than, you know, instruction by itself. Um, and this speed skater had been, you know, trying to solve this issue for a year and then finally found success with this error amplification method. Um, and the one other study I found that wasn't in the book was related to um, relearning how to walk after like a neurological event, Okay, Pro- probably a stroke, but I, you know, I don't know. Um, and they found that error amplification worked better for more skilled subjects and worse for less skilled subject, which makes sense. Um, they did also find because they were training not using walking specifically but like uh it was i think it was something to do with like you had to follow a target on a screen with your foot or something like that so it was like mimicking the movement of gait but not actual gait yeah the Um, focus was elsewhere kind of like that external focus we talked about before where it's like you're not actually focused on you know yeah but like it just like they're not actually trying to walk they're just doing the movement that is like walking yeah that's going to get um, them to get the foot to the target where it needs to be yeah. and then as long as they do it that way then yeah um so they found that for that situation error amplification uh carried over not as well to actual walking which <clears throat> i don't know how much i care about that because it seems like a really weird situation anyway um but i do like the idea that air amplification works better for more skilled subjects I think it, that makes a lot of sense. People that have some capacity of how to do the movement correctly already. Yeah, because then again, you're just giving them the kind of the other end of the the spectrum. Presumably inexperienced or novice people have more ability on the I'm not doing it right 
mm-hmm. side of things than they are on the I'm doing it correctly yeah. side of yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. So you're letting them. You don't you, need to you, introduce more inconsistency to the system. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You kind of show them the other end. And then when they come back and now, and same thing with higher performing learners, they've probably spent more time and have more experience on the I'm doing this correctly side of things. And now you challenge them by bringing them back yeah. to doing the movement differently. And so again, you're just, I think you're introducing challenge to the system and how it organizes mm. to create movement. And in this case, you're just basing that on the experience yeah. level or the training age of the individual. Yeah. I think I would, I would see this stuff as kind of like a constraint um, yes. or kind of like a, you know, a supplementary drill. Like you would use your cues to influence the correct pattern and then use this to like draw attention to a flaw the same way you would use like a, like put a stick in front of someone's face or, you know, or, or like elevate a part of their foot or whatever, just to shift their balance and, and things like that. So it's, you know, you're not actually going to do it that way, but now you have a better strategy to, to overcome that issue when you go back to your actual competition movement or whatever. Yeah. And I, I think one of the, like one of the first points I have with some of the stuff for today, and I think it, it relates to what we're talking about is like the, the idea of this technical model and what do we need to see from the person in order for us to think, okay, we're doing this correctly or we're doing this in incorrectly. And that relates pretty strongly to everything we've talked about so far, where in order to cue or select the right drill or do anything of that nature, like you need to have an idea of what you're looking for in the person, whether they're jumping, squatting, running, performing a sport activity, whatever you need to have this idea of, you know, what do you need from the person? What are you looking for? (laughs) Excuse me. And so I think that, you know, one of the best things we can do is, as coaches is initially we have this, you know, call it technical model or this, you know, this idea of what are we, what are we looking for? And in the past, we've talked about some of these technical models and, and things like that, you know, as it relates to, you know, sprinting actions or, you know, the powerlifting movements and things like that, that was way back. That was what episode like five. Yeah. It was really early on, but yeah, I remember like going over like the, the Venn diagram of the non-negotiables and, and things like that. Yeah. Exactly. And so it's helpful, I think, to have those non-negotiables where, you know, squatting example, like the feet have to be flat. Yeah. Like there's not really a good squat that, you know, you're so far back on your heels, your toes are coming up off the ground, or you're so far forward on your toes that your heels are up to the sky. Like that's a non-negotiable. We need to have a flat foot in contact with, with the ground and same way with like you know, sprinting, we need those vertical positions when we're running upright. That's not really a negotiable thing. So I think it's very helpful for anyone who's thinking about what's the activity, what's the movement, what are you actually coaching? You probably need to have a couple of non-negotiable things that this is what we have to achieve in that movement, because that's actually going to give you something to, to coach. So I feel like when we, when we like if you're actually going to coach something, you need to know what you're looking for. You need to have an idea of where you want to get that person. We're that GPS, we're that guide. Person's trying to get from A to B. Well, if you don't know what that destination looks like, you're not going to be able to help get that person. So I think anytime we're applying this type of knowledge or this type of 
you know, information that we're talking about today and in the previous couple of episodes in this part is you need to have a technical model with at least a couple of non-negotiable things that that person needs to be able to accomplish. I don't think it needs to be super rigid. It doesn't mean, you know, go find a biomechanical analysis of the number one performer in the world in that event or in that movement. And every person you coach needs to look exactly like that because that's not going to happen because everyone's built a little differently. Everyone moves a little bit differently, but can you find the commonalities of people doing things really well? And I think those are the things that you need to have in as your non-negotiables. And that gives you something to coach that gives you a goal to move your athletes towards. So I think anytime we're talking about applying this knowledge as the coach, that's something you need to have prepared in order to be able to actually do this. Cause if I'm trying to teach you how to squat, Braden, and I don't know what I'm looking for. My guidance to you is like useless. I'm not going to know if I'm over cueing you or cueing you to the wrong spot or the right spot. I'm not going to have any awareness of that. So I think that's one of the, the big things that coaches would need to have in place when we're thinking about cueing and instruction. Do you know what you're looking for? Do you have a technical model that is somewhat, you know, dialed in on these are the non-negotiables, but also has some wiggle room to, you know, have the, the athlete expression of how they do that movement. But I think that's such an important piece because that's the, that's the destination on your roadmap that you're trying to create with that athlete. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You need to have some sort of target to aim at because I mean, we're, with all of this queuing and stuff, we're really, as we talked about last time, trying to elicit change in a desirable direction. And, you know, what you just described is the direction that is desirable. Um, so you need to have that in mind. And I think one step beyond that too, it's helpful to have um, sort of like a, if you have like, this is, you know, an acceptable and then this is ideal and you have a sort of like what are what's the hierarchy of things that is most important to address in order to get to the ideal or to get to acceptable even you know like if you were talking about squatting and you don't have feet flat back flat you know and those are the two things that you need for an acceptable squat what of those is most important and how do we how do we now get there you know and um, because if you're seeing a novice do something for the first time chances are there's a lot of things that are different from what your ideal version would look like. Um, and so we know, um, actually, I don't know if we touched on it. I think we did, but like your focus of attention matters a lot in terms of learning. And, you know, you can only focus as a human being can only focus on one thing really at a time. Um, especially if it's not something that's like, if it's very novel or new, exactly. It's difficult to focus on more than, than one thing. If you have a very high degree of experience, with something, it's a little easier to split your attention. But like you yeah. said, if something new, novel for an individual they've never tried before, they got to put a lot of their attentional resources into that one specific thing and not really anything else. Exactly. You know, so if I'm, if I see a novice do one squat and then I'm like, okay, that was fine, let's focus on core bracing. These are the three steps to do for core bracing. And I'm going to get you to push the base of your big toe in the floor, the base of your pinky toe, your heel. Um, and I want you to focus on your knees tracking over your big toe and, you know, push your butt back to the wall. I don't even remember what the first thing you said was. 
Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Right. So let's, let's, pick. and all I was doing was listening to you because this is the only <laughs> thing I'm focused on. Exactly. So let's pick one thing that's going to have the biggest change on the rest of the movement, you know, and that's going to uh, change with experience. You know, for me, I think it used to be, I used to focus inside out a lot of the time, you know, like core brace first and then everything else. Um, I think lately I've been transitioning more to focusing on the feet. Um, but that's going to depend on your experience and, and what you find works for different people and things like that as well. But it's, you need that hierarchy. Um, and it's okay if you try one thing and it doesn't have the impact you want. So then you cue something else. Um, you know, but important to, to know what is the most important things to go after and then go after those first. And when you're satisfied with those, then you can focus on the next thing that will have an impact. Yeah. And, and that's a big part of like the, I don't want to call it like the system or the model that I've created for myself. Right. But everyone's going to have their, their sort of coaching style or their, you know, the, the techniques that work for them. And, you know, with all the information we've talked about over the past couple episodes, like this is sort of like the culmination of the bringing together of like, okay, all that stuff that we've talked about, it's like, okay, how do I actually piece it together as a coach and, and, and deliver that to the, to the athletes. And that's where I've kind of come up with this. I just call it introduce, observe, and coach. Cause that to me is those three those three steps of, of everything that we've, that we've talked about. And this is, again, it's, it, it's, I guess, backed by science in the sense of it's been influenced by different studies and books and readings and all this type of stuff, but it's also a combination of just things that work for me in the mm -hmm. way that I, that I coach. Um, but I often present on, on this anytime I'm, I'm teaching or doing coach ed stuff or anything like that where it's just like, here's an example of how maybe you can piece some of these things together. And, and to me, so like that introduce, that's always the first part of what you're, you're doing. You need to introduce or, you know, show people what it is that you're, you're doing. And I, I really love the stuff from Winkleman's book on this, where internal cues are great descriptors and external cues are great for getting someone to understand the goal or the outcome of what you're doing. So in the introduce, I always try to, you know, show the movement and describe the movement with internal cues, just a couple, like here are some of the movements you're doing. And then you finish it off with like, here's the goal that I want you to, you know, try to achieve when we're doing these reps and then boom, we're off. We're going, try to keep it short and concise um, maybe there's some safety things that you have to, you know, talk about, but if I'm out there doing like acceleration stuff with, with a group of kids that have maybe never done formal track and field training or done formal acceleration, I might just say, Hey, we're doing some 20 meter accelerations. I want you to get from, you know, the first cone to the last cone as quickly as you can. And you're going to run in this lane and you're going to walk back in that lane. And then I might, you know, give them one external cue of, I want you to gradually rise taller and taller as you, you go through the run, or I want you to build the rhythm of the run. The steps will get faster and faster. I'm just giving them that one of those things and then, okay, like go have at it. So I've taken maybe less than a minute to describe this drill to them. They're off and running. And then I think there's a ton of value in that, 
that observation you talked about just before, if someone's never done something before, you see all these things that are like wrong. And then you're like, well, what do I correct? What do I not correct? What's the, the filter? And to me, this observation piece was the toughest one for me to implement because there is an element of like sitting back and doing nothing. You're just letting the person go, which feels incorrect because we're taught as coaches to be very active in what we do. We should be talking to the athletes. We should be showing them things like videos and, and filming and this and that. Like it's supposed to look like we're doing something. Just standing there watching people run by or squat looks kind of lazy. But there were a couple of really interesting studies I read on like from this these learning things where they were all done using like computer simulation games. So they're not necessarily movement patterns, but they gave some people like all the instructions, all the goals, you know, in in the beginning. And then I, I think one of them, for example, was like an Ikea tycoon. Like you had a furniture store and you were trying to grow this furniture store empire as large as you could. And of course that comes with complications of, you now have more production factories, more retail stores, more transportation between the stores, hiring more employees, whatever, whatever. As your company grows larger and larger, you have more elements to manage. And what they found was the group that did the best was actually the group that got very little feedback and instruction in the beginning when the task was relatively easy and they could work through some things and learn it on their own. And then as the task got more and more complicated and they needed more help, they needed more guidance, that helped them later on. And the theory behind that is that there's, there was this exploratory phase where the person, when the task was relatively simple, got to try a bunch of different things. There was trial and error. And if it didn't go well, the consequences weren't super high. And that allowed them to you know, focus on what they were, what they were doing and have a bit of self, self learning. And so I do think that there's value in that for us as coaches to give the athletes some of that exploratory phase. And so that's why I kind of have that introduce the drill, let them go with it and then observe it. Because if you give them something that's appropriate, if it's just a, you know, a plate squat or an arms out squat, the load is not that high. They do a couple of crappy reps. They don't have three, four, 500 pounds on the bar. I'm not talking about having people spiked up, coming out of blocks, running 60 meters down the track, and a hamstring might explode. We're doing 10, 20 meter acceleration in flats, maybe up a hill, something relatively safe. And you let the athlete explore, let the person, the client explore the movement. And then what you might see, hopefully, is this self organization where on the first rep of the squat or the run, you're like, oh, There's like 10 things wrong with that. Like, what do I do? But you've given the person enough reps. You've taken a step back. Maybe by the time they do their sixth run or their second or third set of squats, you go, there's only a couple things wrong now. They've self-organized based on the goal that you've given them. They need time to figure it out. And now with two or three things wrong, instead of 10, it's a lot easier to hone in on that final stage, which is then actually coaching the individual. And then you say, hey, you're doing a great job of whatever. This is now what I want you to focus on. But then again, you've just given them this one thing to 
to do. And then usually that's probably going to be some sort of external cue or, or something like that based on, again, the research from, you know, Winkleman's book or Gabriella Wolf's work where external cues tend to work a little bit better, but that's sort of the called the unofficial system I use where it's like, okay, I'm going to introduce this thing. I'm going to observe the movement and then I'm actually going to, going to coach and get in there. So it's, again, it's difficult to have that observation period. Like it's difficult to sit back and do nothing because then people perceive you as actually doing nothing. But really what you're doing is you're watching the athlete in that self-guided learning process so that you Mm -hmm. can then provide them feedback. So yeah, that's kind of my, you know, rough system that I use and just introduce you know, observe and then jump in and, and coach. Yeah. I mean, and that, I like that. It's very similar to like how Winkleman described things in his, um, in his book as well. And, and I, what he was talking about was regards to a specific, like one rep, I think where you, you know, introduce Q, um, watch as they do the rep and then feedback, feedback. Right. Um, <clears throat> And I think that it, it all makes a lot of sense. And I think the more I've listened to like higher level coaches and better coaches speak about, you know, how their career and stuff, they, as they got better, they were saying less and less, you know, or, you know, they were saying less and less and then got better or, you know, whatever, like it, the two go hand in hand. Or saying less meaning too, they're, they're focusing on less. Like there's Focusing a couple of important things and that's what we're dialed in on. It's not like the example you gave before where it's like 50 cues. I couldn't even remember the first thing you said. Yeah. I mean, it could be both or it could be, you know, like giving the athlete more chance to explore and things like that. Um, it's, I think there is a lot of value in that, as you said, because you will see them figure it out. And I think there's like a lot of self-efficacy that goes with that too. And they can build some confidence with the movement and, and things like that. Cause I mean, if, if you give someone first try at anything, they're going to do it wrong. And second one might be perfect. Like, you know, like you have no idea. So if you go one, if you watch them do one and then you're telling them, okay, this is the thing that I need you to focus on because this is going to have the biggest impact of the overall movement. Maybe they were just about to do that, you know, like give them a few and just, and see how it's going to go, you know, and then, and then you can work on it together and you, that way you're kind of letting them and their body tell you what they need. And then you give that to them because you, you have a better understanding of things. Um, but I think it's important that you are, you're just giving them the next piece, not all of the pieces, because if you give them all of the pieces, they don't know what to do with it. Um, and I like that, that game example too, because it's very early on, the stakes aren't low. You can explore, you can build some confidence with it. And then, I think if you are finding the pieces and finding what works, you know, movement wise, what works for you yourself, then you have a much better understanding of it, a much stronger awareness of it. I think, um, you know, so that like you, you maybe have mastered those pieces, like probably not after six reps or whatever, but you know, you have a much better understanding. So those things are pretty solid. And as the movement gets more complex or you're or you're adding load or you're adding speed or you're changing base of support or whatever um you know those 
those foundations are more solid because you, you, you found them yourselves. You took the time to master those before making things more complicated. Um, because you don't like, it's, you think about like, this is just teaching. This is just learning, right? We didn't learn calculus in grade one. We were never, we didn't talk about calculus in grade one. We were looking at where the hands on the clock were. Yeah. You know, we were, we were looking at how many small boxes made up one big box. Like it's basic, basic, basic building blocks that we then we learned how to do those things, which gave us the foundation to then like, we don't need to think about what division means if we're doing calculus because we know what division is because we've spent so much time doing it, you know? Yeah. And I, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things where, like you said, I've, I've, I've grown to like that because there's a bit of this like self-guided exploration and I find it easier to use, especially with my style. I like to ask a lot of questions when I'm coaching. And so I do find giving them that exploratory phase and that could be even like every day. I tend to make a habit of not coaching the first set or two, yeah, depending on what we're doing. Like if we're in the weight room and we have eight sets of something, probably the first couple sets. I'm not yeah. saying anything. I'm, I'm where are we at today? Where's the athlete? How are they feeling? Whatever. Maybe it's the first set. For example, if we're doing three sets of acceleration on the track, then I let the first set, just let's see where we're at. And then, and then interject. And it works, like I said, well for my coaching style, where I like to ask a lot of questions because we're not a lot of questions, but I like to spark conversation by asking a question like what was your best rep on that last set mm-hmm. or you know which rep were you most happy with or describe that third rep to me something like that because by giving them that exploratory phase and giving them the opportunity to just free of outside instruction focus on what they're doing i do think i get better answers back from the athlete because if i tell them hey do this and that and then I say, which one was your best rep? And they go, oh, well, that one, because I did this and that. They're just reusing my mm-hmm. my coaching cue or my instruction, where I do find it super helpful when they go and do a rep. And then I say, hey, I was really happy with that fourth rep or that third rep. Describe that to me. Like, wh- what were you thinking about? And then they say, oh, I was thinking about whatever and whatever. Then I know, okay, the word snappy or the word you know, whatever is they're associating that with that movement. So then on a day where we're maybe not doing things as well, you can, you, you can come back and use their language and say, Hey, I need you to be more blank on this red. Like I need your foot contact to be snappier, or I need your, your push to be explosive, or I need whatever you're coming back and using their, their mm-hmm. language. But if you don't <clears throat> give them that chance to explore, they're never going to have the opportunity to create their own language for things. Because they're probably just going to reuse your language because that's the easiest and most readily available mm-hmm. thing. So again, this for me works really well for my coaching style because if I want to ask them questions and get feedback from their perspective, I need to give them the time and the opportunity to mm-hmm. explore that movement. And it, you know, again, it works really well for me. It's been tricky sometimes the first couple of weeks where I'm in a a new environment because it's like, Hey, Tom, you can get in there. You can coach. No, no, I'm, I'm good. Like I'm, I'm watching, I'm observing, I'm looking at the tendencies of people. I'm looking at what do they usually do? What's a, 
what are outlier movements and mm-hmm. and all this type of stuff. And to me, that's very valuable for how I coach. Not everyone coaches that way. So I wouldn't say just cut, copy, paste this example. I'm simply providing it as a, you know, an example of how you can kind of piece this information together with your coaching style to come up with something that might be usable for you because we we have talked about a lot of things these past few episodes. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, cueing, instruction, motor learning. How do we perceive things? Drill selection. Like there's so many things we've encompassed in this Yeah. that for me, this was a great way to kind of organize all that information into something. Okay. I introduce, I observe, and then I coach. Mm-hmm. And it was an easy way for me to kind of embody all these elements we talked about Yeah. with the only thing not being super clear on this is you know, what drill or activity are you selecting? But I think if you, you know, can select the appropriate drill for the, the athlete level or the, the skill you're trying to teach, then you introduce, observe and coach the drill that fits that goal. And that's going to vary based on the athletes and their skill level in the sport and all that type of stuff. But Mm -hmm. again, it was just a, a way for me to help kind of compile all this information together in a usable yeah. way where I didn't feel overloaded when I was like, when I'm there live in front of the athletes doing stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think it's, it's valuable too to hear your rationale behind that, because I think if people can get behind that rationale, then they can get behind that strategy too. And I, I personally think it makes a lot of sense. I try to do it um, similarly when I remember to do it that way. Cause I think we all have a tendency to, we have to fight the urge to overcoach and overexplain sometimes. And, um, you know, and I think maybe part of the reason that we don't want to be just standing back and watching is, is a, because we want to correct. We see things that are wrong and we can, you know, we think we can help. So we want to help. Um, we got to get a better sense obviously of, of, is that actually wrong? Is that good for them? Is that wrong for them? Is that random? Is that consistent? Um, you know, and, and a need to feel useful or valuable. And like this, actually, I was, uh, I thought about this earlier in the conversation, but um, I think if you are coaching all the time, giving people all of the answers at every step of the way, you will build very dependent athletes. And if you want that, then go for it. I don't want that. I want an athlete that's going to do things correctly when I'm not there. Um, I want an athlete that's going to do things correctly in their sport. Um, I want, I I think that can ride the bike without the training wheels. I, yeah, I think it would be great if an athlete comes to me one day and is like, you've taught me a lot. I think I'm okay. I think I can take it from here. You know, awesome. Awesome. I'm here if you need any advice going forward, but yeah, I did my fucking job. That's what I mean. You did exactly. You made because at the end of the day, like you can't hold you can't hold someone's <clears throat> hand in sport. Exactly. You can't go out there and help them if if they put seven hundred pounds on the bar, and they go out there to squat that in a powerlifting meet, they're on their own. Mm-hmm. You can't go out there and help them lift it and be like, "Oh, great job! You lifted seven hundred pounds." Yeah. You know, I can't. I can't. I can't take over for you halfway in your four hundred. Mm-hmm. And all you run the first two, I'll run the second two. And then you'll be, you know, super full of energy and you'll run a great time. No, like you have to get out there and run the whole race 
yourself. And so if we create athletes or work with athletes and develop them in a way where the training wheels are always on come competition, when the training wheels are forced to be removed, that's usually when you get that dumpster fire that comes up. And so I completely agree with you that if an athlete says, Hey, I'm ready to go or the coaching almost becomes conversational. It's like, you've done your job. You've given that person the tools to do what they need to do. And you're simply there to help guide them along. Like that's, that's the ideal scenario because no matter how we cut it as coaches, our job is done. The moment the whistle's blown and the game starts or the gun goes off or the bar is unloaded and the safeties are gone. Like the, you, the athlete is on their own at that point. And there is nothing we can do in that moment to influence what happens. Mm-hmm. But we could have done everything in the time leading up to that mm-hmm. to influence what happened. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and so I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, and I like your simplified system for sure. And over time you develop that language, you develop like these are the cues that tend to work well for this movement or for this athlete or, you know, whatever. And, and, um, the drills that tend to work or, or, you know, you, maybe you, you provide a cue and you focus on that for a couple of months and then they're like, that looks great. Let's focus on this now. And you don't ever need to revisit that again. Um, you know, so you, over time, it, it becomes less of like an exploratory thing and more like, we know what we need to do and we're doing it. Um, you know, and, and I think as long as you are seeing the change you want to see, um, then, you're good and you just keep on it. And if you are not seeing change, either that means you've completed your task or yeah, all the reps are perfect. And it's like, all okay, the reps are perfect. we got to challenge you more. Exactly. Um, or this is not addressing the thing that needs to be addressed right now, or um, it's, it is addressing that thing, but it's way too challenging and they can't figure it out. You know, that's, those would be the three examples. So, um, I guess, how would you approach that situation? Let's ignore the everything is perfect because then you either would focus on a different aspect if a different aspect needs to be improved in the movement or just do something more challenging that's basically a progression of what you were just doing um, would be the two ways to approach someone's doing all the reps perfect, I think. Um, you know, but if if someone isn't doing all the reps perfect and they're not improving my head goes to one do you have the physical capacities to do this movement well you know like are you strong enough are you able to relax do you have the mobility um things like that and if you can test those things which those things are very testable and then you find your answer then okay now we need to go do some hypertrophy work or we need to do some mobility work or whatever and then and then you can come back to it later um if that's not the issue, then probably the cue or the drill just isn't addressing what you needed to address, or it's too complicated would be the two things that it could be, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're, I'm kind of in a perfect example of that right now. And I would agree with you. It goes to one of two places. Either we lack some sort of ability, whether that's like you said, a, a physical quality, like strength or rate of force development or, you know, mobility or something like that. There's some sort of structural or, uh, like biomotor ability that's that we lack that's holding us back from doing the movement or okay. like you said it's simply the wrong 
the wrong drill or the wrong focus and it's not clicking for that mm-hmm. person. And so I'm kind of in the middle of that right now with some of the coaching because we are in a phase where we are working on developing high levels of strength in, in the weight room. We are, we are loading heavy right now. This is probably the only opportunity we'll get to load heavy because then when we get into November, December speeds on the track speeds on the runway, jumping, all that stuff becomes far too fast and rapid. We, we can't afford to lift slow and heavy in the weight room. We had that opportunity to develop that strength and now we're moving on. So of course, with common things you see with, you know, younger or weaker athletes when they're accelerating is you don't get that, that hip extension and that piston action push. People are very spinny. They kind of run like the road runner mm-hmm. and they turn over really quick, but they don't cover any ground. They don't project mm-hmm. and move forward. Well, obviously, as we've talked about before in the past, a number of times, you need to be strong enough to push and project the hips. There's a reason why we early on use sleds or hills or resisted forms of running because it slows you down. It forces you to push and extend and try to you know, push through the hip and project the hips forward and, and be patient with your, with your steps. So of course we're, we're doing some of those things. We've talked a little bit about the 1080. We've had sleds out there. So we've been doing resisted forms of, of sprinting and, and things are improving a little bit with, with some of the rookies. It's not perfect. And, you know, I've had some discussions with the coaches where it's like, oh, things aren't, you know, maybe clicking with that person or we're, we're struggling to figure that out. And then I'm also like, well, okay, hold on. We're still in this phase of developing high levels of force, high levels of strength, which some of these athletes have never done before. So in, in this case, it might be really tempting to change some of the things we're doing on the track, but I'm going, okay, let's just stay the course for now let's see how these things look in November once we've developed some more strength because the athletes right now are getting stronger. They're moving more load on the bar. They are moving more, more tin in the weight room. So it's like, okay, when we get out of October and they've developed all that strength, if we're still seeing a lack of something out there and they're not moving the needle forward, then maybe that's a sign that, okay, well, we got stronger. It wasn't that like Mm -hmm. now we need, maybe need to change up some of the drills or change the focus of our cueing. But I suspect a lot of these younger athletes that have not spent a lot of time in the weight room, we're going to see these things clean up as they get stronger. So I don't know exactly if that answers your question, but it's, it's always context dependent. But in this case, I'm going, okay, we might be lacking a biomotor ability, which in this case is like strength and heavy rates of force development, starting strength, things like that. Well, let's get out of the phase first where we're developing those qualities. And now if we have those qualities with the athletes and we're still seeing the mistakes, well, that kind of helps narrow it down. Like, okay, well, we got stronger. We improved our starting strength. The rate of force development's better. We're still not seeing big improvements in what they're doing. Okay, maybe we need to change some of the drills. Maybe we need to change our focus, our cues, something of that nature. Mm Mm-hmm. But we know that it takes a little bit longer to develop some of these physical abilities. You don't lift one time and then wake up the next day and your strength levels are through the roof. Mm -hmm. So that would be my approach to going 
through that if the the reps are let's say like 50 50 like we're making some mistakes but some of them look okay i want to give whatever time we need to get through a certain physical training block to see if those physical or biomotor abilities are what mm -hmm. was potentially lacking it and then once we've put those pieces into place then it's a little easier to detect okay the cues the the drills maybe we weren't selecting the right thing let's try and take a different approach that yeah. way because you may be changing the drill or the concept too too soon or for no reason and it's like oh if you just waited three weeks they've developed a little more strength they've developed a better understanding of how to use that strength and now it all comes together yeah so yeah and I, I think it's i hope that answers it yeah yeah for sure um and i, I like the way you said that too because um like with anything it's you know developing strength takes a little bit more time but um it's all like things need to stabilize when you change things you need to let the system like accept the change and stabilize a little bit so that could be a new cue or a new drill or you know strength or mobility changes whatever um, strength and mobility that they didn't have before potentially exactly. now they're learning how to use it exactly you know so of course things are going to look a little bit weird while they're developing it or you know, if they didn't have the requisite strength, then things are going to look weird in any way. Um, <clears throat> and I think, you know, you committed to the strengthening because a, it makes the most time, most sense for now in the season. Um, but also you think that this is valuable for a good chunk of these, especially the younger athletes like that, you know, historically solves a lot of problems for younger athletes. Um, and I think it's important that you like, this is what we're doing now. Let's let it take the time it needs to, to work. And then we'll see where we're at the same kind of idea. Like if you give somebody a new cue or a new drill and they do one rep and you're like, mm, no, that was, that wasn't any better. Let's do something different. Okay. Relax a second. You know, if they do, if they do like five reps and they all look worse than they did before. Okay. That probably wasn't it. But if you're seeing, you know, some are good, some are not so good. Okay. Let's stay the course. Let's work on this for like a week or two at least, and then see, let's see if that helps, you know, and if that helps, then fantastic. Don't change it until it stops helping. Um, I was listening to a podcast yesterday and they were talking about, um, it was, they didn't use these words, but you know, we've talked about how I do my, um, powerlifting programming with Mike Tashur's kind of you keep things the same until it stops working. And, and you talked about your bonder truck experiment and things like that is the very same idea where you, you introduce something new, whether it be a strength stimulus or a mobility stimulus or, you know, a cue or whatever, you know, and then, and you wait for the system to stabilize and fully accept that new stimulus until that new stimulus isn't new anymore, really, you know, and then, and then when it is, when it's not new anymore, it's been accepted. It's been integrated. You know, they've mastered that skill or they have fully developed that ability, at least with this stimulus, you know, then now we can change things. Now they're ready for new information or a new stimulus to, you know, onto the next thing that's going to help them. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up the, the point of like, if everything looks wrong, then it's probably not the right thing to do. Cause that's the same idea that you talked about before. Well, all, if all the reps are perfect, then we're not challenging them enough. So we got to move on. I think it's the exact same thing. If all the reps are terrible, then we've probably overloaded them 
and we need to wait until they're they're stronger or they've developed more skill or whatever. So I think that's another you know helpful piece of information where if some of the reps look good, some of the reps don't look so good or there's elements of it that they're getting and elements that they're not like that's what we want from learning. We mm-hmm. want there to be a bit of this and a bit of that and they're trying to figure it out. So I think anytime you have, you know, some things that are going well and then some things that are not going well, that's a sign that you're probably selecting the right drill and the right right things for that athlete or that client to be doing because they're working through that skill. And then like you said, we can kind of figure out okay to get them from 2 out of 4 to 3 or 4 out of 4 when they do a an activity in terms of like, you know, the number of reps they got correct. Mhm we play around with the cues a little bit, or we, we wait to see if, you know, what happens when they develop some new physical abilities. I think that's another, I, I think a sign where if you have a bit of that good and bad struggle, that's a sign that you're probably in an okay place from a, a coaching programming or prescription mm-hmm. perspective, because then the athlete's still figuring some of it out. Yeah. You don't want them on one extreme or the other. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm glad that you brought up that point that it works on both ends. If all mm-hmm. the reps are perfect, we got to move on. If all mm-hmm. the reps are incorrect, we got to move on to something different. Like we, yeah. we can't be in one extreme or the other. There needs to be that challenge for the person to learn. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very glad you brought that up. Yeah. And okay. So we're at basically the end of the episode now. And we, I feel like there's a lot more we still could talk about, you know? Um, but I think this is maybe a good place to kind of sum up. So like last, last thing I want to, um, we'll talk about is we, we did talk a little bit about, um, you know, how to, how people go from beginner to expert kind of a thing. Um, and so you're obviously starting a lot more simple and slower and low load and maybe low range of motion and, um, you know, very, um, like basic, not focusing on a lot of things, just one, one little thing, one simple cue, um, you know, high, like repetition practice. And then as you progress, you're going to more variability. You can focus on more specific things. You're doing things faster, less stability, higher loads, you know, however you want to progress the movement, um, and things like that. And, and, and more, randomness more openness depending on the sport um so that's like a general trend of how you would progress somebody and and influence their learning long term um do you have any sort of like guidepost or like a system to determine like where do you stand like does this person need a cue does this person need a different cue does this person need a physical restraint or um like an imaginary restraint, you know, or, you know, a, a, a cue that encourages exploration or a cue that encourages like, this is how to do it correctly kind of a thing, you know? Um, yeah. Well, like, where do you stand on that? Like it's, it's obviously very individual, very hard to navigate and A lot of it comes down to experience, but if there's any takeaways, that's helpful. You know, I'm a big fan of constraints. Yeah. Uh, and the, and I guess the, the thing that sparked, that's usually my answer, but the, the rationale I'm going to give is based where you talked about, oh, you can, you know, start slow, limited range of motion, whatever, and start to build up over time. 
one of the really nice things about constraints is that <clears throat> you can kind of do both. Like if I get somebody, for example, to sprint up a hill 10 or 20 meters, the output, the intent can still be like full. They're mm -hmm. they are moving as fast as they can. The intent in terms of I need to push into the ground, I need to attack the ground with my foot is all still at 100%, the same way it would be in acceleration. Mm -hmm. I've just simply capped your velocity output because you're going up a hill or running with a sled. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I like most about constraints is that it allows for the intent and the purpose behind something to still be very high or match how it actually is in the, the true activity. But then it's simply the, the output of something that has been, that has been held back. Because again, I think it's one of those things you get this artificial success when you do something really well, that's like very slow and controlled and different than the movement. You know, it's like, mm. it's very easy to hit all the right positions in like a, a wall march on the drill, mm. like, like a wall march drill when you're up mm. against the wall and people pissed in the leg and they do whatever, <clears throat> when you're trying to move four, five, six, seven, eight meters per second, that kind of falls apart the same way. There's a lot of people that probably look really good squatting with just the barbell, but if you slap 700 pounds on that bar, a lot of things can go wrong. And so at least from my perspective with, with sprinting and running and, and track and field movements, because I think that's probably the most complicated movement that I personally coach. Mm. There's such a drastic difference between slow controlled practice movements or drills that give you context and the actual speed of the event. I'm a big fan of the constraints because I think it allows the intent and the purpose of what you're doing to always be at the level it's going to be. And then we simply use the constraints to kind of cap the, the output velocities or the output intensity overall. But I do find that that allows things to transfer better because like I said, the, the purpose behind the movement is still, is still there. It's, it's fast without being fast mm -hmm. or it's powerful without being powerful. I'm just containing the output of it, but I'm still getting everything like from the nervous system, how hard you're an athlete still pushing into the hill as hard as they can, same way spiked up in blocks. They're pushing out of the blocks as hard as they can, mm -hmm. but you're going to go faster in one than the other. Mm -hmm. But I find the intent and the purpose transfers really well. And so that's why I really like those constraint-based drills and approach and for that type of activity. And mm -hmm. I don't know examples in other sports. I'm sure soccer coaches, football coaches, rugby, baseball, whatever. I'm sure there's coaches out there that have examples of that in other sports, but that's my personal, uh, you know, approach to that because I do find there's such a huge disconnect between slow control drills and then the high speed activity that we're doing that yeah. constraints allow me to best blend those two, two things and make it safe and easier to learn in the beginning, but still relates close enough to the end goal that things don't magically fall apart. Mm -hmm. when we we ramp up the speed of the intensity too high well yeah i mean it's too it's too far removed i'd say um yeah like the wall march to the sprint is too far removed so it, you know the, there needs to be steps in between if somebody can't do a good wall march then probably start there um 
you know, but uh, yeah, there needs to be steps in between. And I'm also a big fan of constraints as well. Um, it's to some extent, maybe depends on your resources and what's around. Um, but um, well, that's the beauty of the constraints. There's no right or wrong. There's a number of ways you can achieve the same thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, but I, I like constraints in the way that you can put somebody in a position to that makes it very easy to do the correct thing, you know, and you don't necessarily need, you need to give them a goal, but you don't tell them how to achieve it. And because it's very easy to achieve in this situation, then they figure it out and then they get, they gain that understanding, you know, like I, um, I, I've been learning more about, uh, biomechanics and stuff lately. And, um, so if the body doesn't want to move in a specific way, like that, these movements are all locked up and it's, it's helpful to have more options. Movement options is a big thing. Right. Um, and so if you don't want to move that way, if you have someone move very fast or under very high load, then of course they're not going to move that way. But if you unload them completely and maybe you take more load, so you have like the front foot is elevated and that takes even more load off of the front leg. So the front leg can rotate, you know, in a way that it's not used to rotating. And then you put like a wedge under one side of their foot or you put like a foam roller on the outside of their knee or whatever. And it's like, okay, there's a lot of things that are preventing you from moving in the way you're used to moving. It becomes very, very easy now to move in the way that you are, that we're trying to get you to be able to move in. Um, and same kind of like if you're applying it to sport, like you mentioned rugby, we used to do like two on one drills all the time in rugby. And it's a drill for the offense to see like, where is the opening, you know, and there's only one person and there's two of you one of you is going to be open. It's a 50, 50 chance. Like if you just flipped a coin, you'd get it half the time. Right. Um, you know, so then that makes it very, very simple. And then you expand it to a three on two kind of thing, which it makes it a little bit more complicated, but it's still not that tricky. And then that's the step in between, you know, now you've got a full fly line of seven people and hopefully you've created an overlap where you, you're like got a seven on six situation. And now it's a lot trickier to find that opening, but you've worked your way up to that point. Um, you know, and, and just telling someone like, Hey, find the opening is maybe not going to get them to recognize that opportunity as well. Yeah. It's maybe um, not enough, but if you, you could try to potentially put like limits on the space or, you know, where they're starting from or whatever to help encourage. Yeah. I would imagine. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, again, I don't coach rugby, so I don't know for sure, but I imagine yeah. that, you know, starting X number of meters apart, you know, being closer or farther, that would all change the difficulty of the yeah. drill. And that's a constraint that you can put in like, Hey, you're going to have to start closer together. You're going to start further apart. That changes the speed that changes this. Mm-hmm. Like you've put something in that they can't change. They just have to work around it and figure it out. And so I imagine you could put things in yeah. place to try to encourage them to find the the correct way of doing it, or in this case, like finding that opening, finding the open mm-hmm. teammate, you yeah. could skew things in favor or not in favor of, yeah. you know, finding that. Absolutely. And, you know, I think us as coaches, it's like we talked about in, you know, 
one of the last two episodes that it's it's a lot easier just to say things and just to keep saying things and just to put the information out instead of delivering the information in a way that's easy to receive um you know which is really what the job needs to be and you know if you are um intentful in practicing that it becomes easier over time and you and you develop like like when i started trying to give more external cues like I had to really think like, okay, how would I actually handle this situation? Because I don't know, I'm used to dealing with it in this way, you know, and then you develop a few cues that work for common issues that you see. And then, you know, over time you got a pretty solid repertoire um, and you can deal with most situations. So it just, and of course the constraints practice. aren't perfect, but yeah. you know, you, you, can you work them. through what works, what doesn't work. Yeah. There's definitely been times where I put constraints into play and then I'm like, oh, this is teaching them the wrong thing. Yeah. And then like, you just change them and you just, you just change it. And so for me, I like a little bit of the challenge uh, mm-hmm. of that as well. Um, but the, again, that's personally what I, what I use. It works well for me, but they, mm-hmm. they aren't perfect and you do need to trial and error a little bit, but I mean, I guess, you know, maybe one of the best ways to summarize it, like the whole series we just had is we've talked about, it's okay for the athletes to make mistakes because they learn and then they get better. I mean, it's okay for us as coaches to try something and it doesn't work and we learn yeah. from it and we get better. And then we come back and do something, yeah. something different. So every session doesn't need to be perfect. Every drill doesn't need to be perfect mm-hmm. from our perspective. As long as we're learning something and adapting, then yeah. I think we're allowed to have the same affordances yeah. as the athletes in that gotta, case. Yeah, so you can't succeed if you're, if you're always trying not to fail, you know, like you, I, it's completely seemingly unrelated but i was talking to my brother about like food preparation he's been experimenting with making different hot sauces and like how to perfect chicken and things like that yeah um and you know for me like i like cooking i like eating good food um but if i buy a nice steak i'm not trying to mess it up you know and for that reason the recipe is always the same because i know it's good and i'm never gonna find the best but i'm also never gonna make it terrible you know and so having the the freedom to explore what could be really good what could be better and you know realizing you might make some mistakes and that's okay giving yourself the freedom to make some mistakes so that you find what's best because you want to give what's best right yeah that's a perfect example and like i said i just we've talked all about you know the athletes being allowed to make mistakes and it's good i think we're as coaches we're allowed to make yeah. some mistakes too, like within reason, yeah. um, you know, but certainly picking the wrong drill and then be like, mm, that didn't do what I wanted it to do. I'm going to try something different. That's a completely acceptable mistake yeah. from, from yeah. a coach. I think that's a, that's very forgivable. Yeah. For sure. Um, and just be open know, about it. It, it. Exactly. So I, yeah. I like that, you know, it's kind of the cap for, for this is, Hey, it's, it might not be perfect, but give it a try, give it a go, see what happens. Yeah. And you know, use your knowledge and your experience to decide if, if it's worth continuing or not, but you'll never know unless you try it. So yeah. like, go for it. Absolutely. Um, and another thing that you talked about a long time ago that could potentially work as a constraint for uh, sprinting and stuff was music. You know, you talked about uh, the, the rhythm of the strides increasing and, and things like that. And uh, one of my favorite cues. Yeah. One of my favorite cues. Yeah. So, I think it's just because I'm such an auditory person. So it doesn't work for, again, it doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. And, and I mean, the song choice would depend. Um, 
And so, uh, yeah. Anyway, what were you listening to this week, Thomas? So I was a little bit more back on the, the on the punk train. Hmm. I was listening to a little bit of Rancid, Dead Kennedys, uh, The Descendants. I think I've talked about some of those bands before, but uh, I was encouraged. I came across a uh, a clip from SNL with you know who Fred Armisen is. Mm-hmm. He was on SNL for a number of years. I think he's a voice for one of the characters in uh, Big Mouth. Okay, um, sure. He, he's like a relatively well-known comedian, but he was on SNL for a number of years. He's a huge punk fan. To me, he's a musical genius. He loves to work music into his comedy. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of skits he has where he's like playing punk rock personas. Mm-hmm. And so there's this one of the, the punk band reunion and it's him, Bill Hader, uh, I think Ashton Kutcher and then Dave Grohl is like the musical guest. Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, Nirvana mm. and things like that. And they put together this like punk band reunion at their kid's wedding and they think they're going to play something soft and gentle. And then they, you know, they're kicking over the tables and they're, you know, yeah. smashing the wine bottles and all that stuff. Um, and so I was like, and the, but the song is really like, it's actually pretty good and catchy. Mm. Yeah, and all of Fred Armisen stuff is is like that. So then I was like, oh, I'm listening to a bunch of punk that kind of sounds like it was influenced by that. So I was just kind of, I randomly came across that clip. I love that that skit that they do. It's one of my favorite ones. Mm-hmm. And I actually wish that like Fred Armisen would start a punk band. Like that would be amazing. I would mm-hmm. love for him to do that. Yeah. So if he's happy, if you happen to be listening, start a punk band. I'm there down to go. listen because anybody... every fun like joke song they play on snl that he puts together like could actually be like a legitimate song so i'm like why not just go for it yeah so that's what i was listening to nice that's cool yeah if anybody has loose connections to fred arverson let him know um yeah that's cool i i was listening to hollywood undead this week which i've oh, mentioned them before yeah. as well my brother informed me that they had a a new album out recently i don't know i can't remember how recent it was um so i went been into around it. forever too been around for a while yeah. um but uh i had low hopes if i'm being completely honest because their <laughs> last album was quite disappointing for me um but uh this one was not bad this one was decent there was some some really good songs on there um so yeah some some stuff was a little bit more a little bit more metal than i've uh, been used to from them which was cool um and then some other stuff like when they when something some stuff gets a little bit poppy a little bit funky like i really like that version of of them okay. um i always think of them as like on the edgier side yeah like when i think well, about the music from them that i've enjoyed or i thought was good i thought it was that's how it described it. it's a little bit edgy yeah yeah for sure i mean when i'm saying funky it's probably not how you imagine funky sounding it's like the same edginess but like a little bit more i don't know how it's just this is what I, it sounds like to me i don't know the right words i'm not versed in music so i mean i'm not an expert on the self-taught well i know but I, I don't know the right words for stuff but anyway um a little bit poppier a little bit funkier um emphasis on a little bit and yeah. it sounds pretty good to me there's like some of their party songs are still like you're saying the exact same thing that you're saying 10 years ago you know so <laughs> i could leave that but um yeah there were some really good songs in there so i was i was pleased with that mm-hmm. well i'm glad that didn't disappoint you this time around yeah that's that's or disappoint as much 
yeah. however you want to look at it. No, it was good. It was good. 50, 50% or so. It's pretty solid. It is so good. It gives me. you a few songs to add to a playlist here or there. Like yeah. you're like, oh yeah, I can go back and listen to that. Yeah. Exactly. Compared to the whole album being a dud and you're like, I don't want to listen to that ever again. Like, yeah. nah, exactly. I'm good. Exactly. So yeah, it was good. It was good. And this was uh this was a really good series. And I'm I think we'll come back to this at some point and talk a little bit more about, you know, a specific portion of it. Like I'm not sure. Part of like it's such a huge part of coaching. Yeah. And we do it every day when we're out there working with people and Mm-hmm. And things like that. I'm sure there's, it, it's going to continue to evolve for us. We're going to change how we coach, change how we implement things. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be new things we can come back and, and talk about. And the research is always changing. Like it's, we're in a very dynamic world mm-hmm. of, yeah. you know, coaching and sport, sport performance. So there's n- nothing stays the same for long. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm, you know, after, after these conversations have a little bit of idea of how to do things a little bit differently already. So exactly. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's why we're here. So it has been yeah. a really fun one. <clears throat> yeah, Long episode definitely. today, but a lot of fun to unpack all this stuff. And we've been waiting forever to put this together. Yeah. And it's yeah. It, it was a lot of fun to do this. So I I I enjoyed it. It was worth the wait. Yeah. For you sure. know, from May to October or whatever it was to actually mm-hmm. get the recordings in and do that. But yeah, I I had a lot of fun with this series. Mm-hmm. Me too. And I feel like I say that every time. And it's so hopefully they fun. just keep getting better and better. And we fun. have more fun. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah so as as always if there's anything you want us to talk about or questions comments concerns uh let us know on instagram speed strength show speed strength performance or Braden southern um yeah this was a lot of fun so yeah that was it uh thanks for coming along world that was speed strength show we'll see you next time peace